is Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Welcome, folks, to the latest episode of Existential. Um, it is so great to be back with all of you. Uh, so great to have you listening again. For all of you who are part of the Patreon community, make sure you keep listening because there is some uh, some bonus footage at the end for you. I really appreciate all of you who are part of, part of that community. If you are not a part of the pod, uh, the Patreon community and you'd like to be, there is a link in the show notes of this episode and I think every other episode that you can click on and join that community come hang out with us once a month and um just you know be a part of that community that's all that's all i can say about it but today i've got a a guest uh with me that we're actually meeting for the first time um a friend of a friend who's doing amazing work her name is danielle prescott um and she is with us today danielle thanks for coming on the podcast thanks for having me i'm excited to be here yeah so we were just talking about you moving from new york city to new orleans which to me it, it just seems like such a radical move. It, it's, it almost feels like in coming to America where they were just like, they just spun the globe and just pointed because like New Orleans from New York feels like just like a, a just a drastic change. So why did, why did you make that move? It is a drastic change. Like it honestly, like I have like been in culture shock and I still get culture shock. Um, it's been a year and a half since I moved and it still happens to me. Um, but you know, when I was thinking about where I wanted to live, I was like, there's really like for my personality and like what I do professionally, there's only so many places in the U S that I can like live comfortably. So I was like, I can live in New York, which I already do. I was like, I can live in LA, um, which there's something about LA that just didn't feel right to me. Mm. Like when I was looking at homes, because while you do get more for your money in LA, you don't necessarily save any money by moving to LA because you just have the same kind of like issues that you would have anywhere else. It's just sunny. Um, and then, you know, I had, I had loved New Orleans when I visited it. I feel like I vibed with it and I was just like, you know, I feel like this would be a good place to live. There's also like an incredible history of free black people in this city mm. So even though it is in the South, it has like this embedded culture in it that other Southern cities, and like, I don't want other people in the South to get super mad. <laughs> like, you know, when I go to places like Charleston, or mm. if you go to places like, I don't know, certain areas of Virginia, like you can tell the culture was suppressed. Like you can tell people mm. like, you can feel the kind of trauma there. And I feel like in New Orleans, there's so much joy and the history is real complicated and messy. And like, yes, we have our, our own stuff in Louisiana. Like it is still a red state. I'm still very aware of that. But New Orleans feels very special. And anyone will tell you that like New Orleans is an outlier, like mm. in the South, it really is. And so mm. um, it's great for me. It works for me. I really wanted a more peaceful life. And now it's okay. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting about, about, um, you know, being a transplant, that's, I'm a transplant to the Bay area. Um, especially like, you know, when you're black, one of the things that's really interesting is that you can't just pick up and go anywhere 
or at least yes. you don't feel that way. Like the the, mul no. the multi layers of dilemma you have are like. So we had we moved with small children. We're going okay. We want to live somewhere where there's good schools. Okay, well that yeah. means because of redlining, because of all of the racism in America, that means that we're probably not going to be living around our people unless we yeah. live in somewhere like D.C. or Atlanta. So you're kind mm -hmm. of like having to decide between do I want to live somewhere that's uh, been uh, purposefully uh, depleted of resources yeah. to be in solidarity with other black folks mm -hmm. and brown folks, you know, or do I want to live where there's more resources, better schools for my kids, all those sorts of things have to go through your mind when you're, when you're moving. And it's interesting to think about, like, for you wanting to find peace, it's like you couldn't just up and move anywhere in America. No. Had, it had to be no. somewhere that was at least less racist <laughs> than other parts of the country. Yeah, exactly. You really have to, like, factor that into your response. I had, I just read a book and one of the main plot points that I was thinking about when I finished this book was like, this is so, this is only possible for white people. So the book was about like mm. two sisters. They were from New York City and they end up like on a fluke chance moving to Asheville, North Carolina. And I was like, and they're welcomed by the town and they fall <laughs> in love. And it's like this whole thing. And I was just like, I don't even think that people realize like how impossible it is. Like I, I don't even travel anywhere before Googling the city plus racism. Like, cause wow. I need to know what's going on before I step foot there. Wow. Wow. Dang. So, okay. So you are, uh, I didn't do this introduction in the beginning. Um, you know, this is probably some, I haven't been podcasting in a while, Russ, but like <laughs> you, um, you are, you are an author, a writer, uh, and you are a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, consultant. You and your business partner started uh, a, a uh, business of consulting. Tell us a little bit more about that because that's I'm really interested in the work you're doing in DEI because it seems like it's really unique and it, and like you found a real niche uh, for your work. Yeah. Um, so it, the business is about two years old now, and um, Christy and I both spent time working as fashion editors at various magazines and publications. And so we met when she was an editor at Harper's Bazaar and I was an editor at Elle. And um, for a long time, we were both the only black people on our teams. Mm -hmm. um, and Chrissy grew up maybe like 20 minutes away from me. So we had like a similar upbringing, although like I am generationally very American and her parents are both Jamaican immigrants. So she's mm -hmm. generation American. Um, so like our perspectives diverge a little bit there, but for the most part, our business is centered around helping fashion and beauty brands work towards anti-racism, um, mm -hmm. and confront their relationship to white supremacy. And, uh, unfortunately it has been work that Christy and I were both doing individually for free for a number of years by emailing people, telling them that campaigns they were doing were inappropriate, that language they were using wasn't right, various things, um, or talking to them about why we would or not would not cover something. Mm. Um, and frankly, like nobody cared for a really long time. Like they weren't yeah. listening to us. Like, you know, there was a lot of times like in the industry where I'm like, I'm a pariah now because everyone's like, this girl's crazy. She always has a problem with somebody and someone doing something. And then suddenly 
in June of 2020, everyone decided to care. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, I'm like, here's this email from 2017 that I sent you telling you that your brand is being racist and you didn't want to listen to me. But now all of a sudden in 2020, you do some like, we're going to charge the people money. And that's Mm -hmm. what we do now. Yeah, that's dope. I mean, I think there's so many people's stories. Um, it's it's a it's unfortunate and tragic that it took um, what happened to George Floyd for there to be this newfound interest in things that we've been experiencing and talking about living through for as long as we've been professionals. If yeah. you are black, brown, uh, female, queer, yeah. uh, people with disabilities, and you are uh, in the workplace, you have been experiencing discrimination and marginalization for decades. Mm-hmm. And like you said, no one gave a shit, <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden 2020 happens and I don't even understand what that thing was. I don't I don't understand because it's not the first time that there was a race based incident of violence from the state towards a no. black, a black male. It's not the first time, but for whatever reason, this maybe it was a pandemic. I don't know that like this became a thing, but it is interesting um, to ask ourselves if there is actually a change of heart or just like a change of attention, you know, are people actually, you know, you said they didn't care before, like, does it seem to you that there is more concern um, or is there, you know, it does it seem a little bit more trendy now that people are like concerned about, you know, interested, I should say in this. I ask myself this a lot, and, you know, as we come up on the two-year mark, um, I would say there's certainly less interest. Mm -hmm. There's certainly Mm -hmm. less caring than Mm -hmm. a year ago um, or even, like, a year before that. So Mm -hmm. I would say that I have observed changes on individual levels, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily on a collective level that's, Mm -hmm. like, big enough to make a difference. But I do think that like people are acknowledging things like things that would have never been said in meetings before are now being said. So there is a shift for sure. And I will say the, the main part is that like, you can't pretend not to know, like Mm -hmm. the idea that you can like feign ignorance or be like, I don't know, is it really that bad? Is it really that big of a deal? like that kind of buffer is now removed Mm. um, because Mm. we are having like so much of these conversations in schools, in professional institutions, in, you know, certain industries, medicine, finance, politics, et cetera. So I think that, you know, those conversations are moving the needle, but um, Mm. on the day-to-day scale, it's, I think, very hard to see if there's a difference or not. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's it's interesting that you you name it that way. That like there's less interest, but you can't feign ignorance, right? It's it's like I, I remember. Um, so when I was a kid, and this is many moons ago, <laughs> when I was like in the in the early '80s, um, mm-hmm. you could talk about Michael Jackson or Prince as like that that being gay and like like joke about that right and it'd be okay and you fast forward to like i don't know 2004 2006 and i would go into barbershops 
And whereas in the barbershop before people would make remarks and jokes about things that were homophobic, mm. all of that started to stop. Like you could yeah. just see, it's not necessarily necessarily that black culture, especially a lot of black hetero male culture has changed when it comes mm-hmm. to, you know, homosexuality. It's still, there's still a lot of work to be done uh, yeah. in the black community uh, among black men for that. But you could see the acknowledgement that our behavior needs to change because society is demanding it. And I think that, you know, the work you're doing. And when you, when you talk about it in that way, I think that's a win. I think it's something to like, to celebrate that, like, okay, maybe hearts haven't changed the way we'd like to see them change. Maybe people don't care as much as we'd like to see them care. Maybe there's this, this, these trends where people are all about it. And then times where they're not, but what we are recognizing is that behavior is changing because you are rewarded, quote Mm -hmm. unquote, for yeah. you know checking the right boxes which i i have a tension with i have torn around the box checking but i also understand that the box checking is in a lot of ways a step forward yeah it is like we always say you know people are so worried especially about appearing performative mm-hmm. when they do stuff like oh no like is this performative should i post this should I it? <laughs> and i'm like you can't think about it like that because performative things do have an impact right like Mm -hmm. especially if it is like uh, a very like white institution Mm -hmm. now performative things like walmart selling juneteenth ice cream is totally inappropriate right yeah Yeah. (laughs) but performative actions like walmart starting a scholarship for just black kids to attend an hbcu performative sure but helpful also yeah you know yeah Okay, so that's that's I was going to ask you, like, for folks that might see see the Walmart Juneteenth ice cream and be like, yeah, and then then see the reaction from the black community and be like, oh, shit, like, I guess that was, you know, so talk about the difference between a, a little bit more about the difference between actions that are that may be performative, but helpful and actions that are just performative and not at all. Right. So. The problem with um, an institution like Walmart is that Walmart has, like, shifted so much of the fabric of our country just based on, like, how they do business. So they're, like, a leader in, you know, not paying people fairly, not giving people vacation time, just, like, real toxic capitalism stuff um destroying small businesses and communities like building these places where you're selling products for way less and then um you know local businesses cannot keep up or compete mm-hmm. um and notoriously being racist throughout all of that so walmart has a very long history that's uncorrected of like grievances with people of color in this country specifically mm-hmm. So it is not enough to put this like bandaid on it being like, we are going to sell merchandise, which essentially continues to benefit Walmart than to the black community. Uh, like when frankly, they've always had the opportunity if they wanted to do something that would help black people, they've always had that opportunity, but fine. If you're not going to, if you're not going to do, if you're not going to take, 
requisite steps in order to make so-called reparations, the way to do it is not with an ice cream. It is not with a repurposed, <laughs> you know, graphic T-shirt at all. <laughs> wow, man. You know, the way to do it would be like divesting funding from, I don't know, I believe you can buy guns at Walmart. Like you right. buy so many terrible things right. at Walmart. Right. 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 Reallocating it to programs and, commun- and, and community-centered things that would actually help the Black community as opposed to like just doing this posturing thing. Oh, we have mm-hmm. ice cream. <laughs> Like it really has nothing to do with that, like at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I think you're right. I mean, it's it is um, it's fascinating to see that the things that people will do instead um, of the right thing. Yeah, right. Instead of like the real change, right? Yeah. Instead of like actually. Uh, as you said, divesting from systems and ways of thinking and being that are continuing to perpetuate harm on a daily, regular basis to Mm -hmm. people of color, people in marginalized communities. And, you know, but you know, what's, what I think is, I guess somewhat of what we've all kind of somewhat done a dis in some ways done a disservice is that certainly up until now, when we become a little bit more aware of what real change looks like, we would we would celebrate things like ice cream back in the day. Like, oh, look at them. You know, we'd like the point out we would we would offer these social rewards for minimal action because we didn't want to be what you described earlier. We didn't want people to look at us and think that we were nitpicking or we didn't want to be the person that was that always had an issue, always had a chip on our shoulder. We like we're so afraid, certainly us, us that are black, so afraid of this like angry black man or black woman syndrome that like we would just tolerate stuff and secretly be like, I wish you would have done more than ice cream. But, you know, at least you did ice cream. Yay. What a great you know what I mean? And I think now one of the awakenings is us coming to a place that says, hey, listen, we we deserve to live free and to we deserve to exist in a world that doesn't um, push us to the side, that doesn't oppress us, that marginalizes us. And we deserve to live in a world where those of you who have benefited from our oppression actually have to change and that we actually hold you accountable to change. Yeah. I mean, you can get ice cream from anywhere, but it would be really nice if Walmart made, you know, a blanket policy about racial profiling people when they're shopping in stores. Like, yeah. I'm sure that would make a lot more black people feel more comfortable <laughs> in a Walmart than having, you know, a red velvet cheesecake ice cream. Yeah, where we get fought. We, we, you got ice cream in there, but you still have your managers, like, aware that we're in the store and following us around the store, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> For sure. So some of your work too, I, I, I love the the idea that you write in this book. It's called Token Black Girl. Yes. And I love the idea behind it. Um, the the what you are entering into conversation that you're you're bringing us into. So talk to us about that book, like how it came about, uh, and, and sort of the the idea behind Token Black Girl. Sure. So in early 2020, I had decided that I wanted to write a book. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted the book to be about, but um, because I had spent so long working in fashion and beauty magazines, I was like, okay, 
my role in this system was essentially a vehicle for white supremacy. Mm. And I did not realize when I had entered that, that it had worked on me. So I was having my own battle with internalized racism and then working in media where we broadcasted more internalized racism Mm. for everybody. Um, And I thought that, you know, there was something wrong with me. Like I really wanted to figure out like why I was like, why do I have so many self-esteem issues? Why Mm. do I have, you know, why am I always questioning myself? Why do I have imposter syndrome? Why do I have all of these things that are constantly plaguing me. And really the answer was that I had spent a lot of my life being hyper visible and a tool for a lot of people, either in schools or in hobbies that I would use. Like I always say, I've been on the cover and brochure website, whatever, of every school I've ever been affiliated with, every office I've ever worked at. <laughs> you know? But at the same time, it's like, so it's like, oh, I'm so visible working here, but no one listens to me when I say something in a meeting. Like mm. I'm just, you know, I'm constantly silenced. I can't actually say what I think to these people um, because it's not a safe space to do so. But you know my face. <laughs> You've seen it wow. everywhere. Because, but that wasn't necessarily a choice of mine. So I was like, how did this happen to me? And I started tracing it back. And how it happened to me was essentially I was the only black girl in a lot of the schools that I went to and a lot of the, you know, extracurricular activities that I did. And because those extracurricular activities, like I did ballet, um, I did, I, I ride horses, I play tennis. All of these things um, were making me increasingly hyper-visible, but I did not feel like I had any power. Mm. Um, and so it really, you know, it ends up taking a toll on you into adulthood if you don't figure out, you know, how to make these these institutions that we have more inclusive, like more affirming and validating for your identities instead of reductive. Mm. Um, that's what I felt. Damn, like okay, so that's that's a this is a whole podcast, right? So like I'm, I am like, uh, damn. So I I love this notion of being visible, but like unseen, um, you yeah. know, unheard, and not having power. You know, I I used to be a part of a youth group when I was in high school. Um, I was the only, like one of the only black people at this youth group. Mm-hmm. And every, every, just about every Wednesday, I get the call to come and be um, on the, what they call the quote unquote side worship team. So I was like, I was the, I was, because I was black, you know, and I get up on stage and smile and, and basically go along with the motion. <laughs> right. But I didn't have a microphone, even though I was, I was actually, I was an incredible singer, but I didn't have a microphone and I'm just there to give the, the visual image. This was like well before, like this is back in the nineties, late nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this idea of being seen very visible, but having no power, I think it resonates with so many people of color. Yeah. Um, 
in the United States that are part of any institution, whether that's a church or a business or nonprofit, mm-hmm. you know, um, just as basic citizens in society. And, and you use this word power. And I'm interested to know um, if you can, like, speak to what you mean when you say power and then what, what you've done to try and regain that power. Sure. So it's interesting because, you know, I, I, I write this in the book that one, when I was around only white people, they imbued me with this like social cachet that I don't feel like I earned simply for being black. Mm-hmm. Like, they were just like, Danielle will tell us what's cool. Danielle will translate these rap lyrics for us. Danielle, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. But I'm like, why do they think I'm cool? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and, but at the same time, like that is truly just surface level stuff. So as inevitably will happen when there is a clash of, you know, black people and white people, like these, like things just take a racist undertone in this country. Like, and it can be something as benign as like, you know, you're being racially profiled in a store and your friends don't understand why someone's following you around the store. Like, and, and also like then whether or not you should be upset about it. So if you witness some racist incident of varying degrees of, you know, severity, and you said something like, I think that's racist, or that made me feel uncomfortable, immediately you're being questioned, are you sure? Or that was just a joke. Mm. You should get over it. Mm. And so you're an authority when someone needs you to be, you know, on a sports team or tell you what the Sean Paul saying means, (laughs) but in like a real life situation. And like, I I don't think that white people have this like material reality of danger. You know what I mean? Like my parents would always say things like, don't let your white friends get you into trouble. We can't get you out of. So like, they don't understand that like if we like every kid is wants to underage drink or whatever. But like, my thought is like, if the cops show up here, like I could be dead and you don't have that level of fear or consequences. And so like you begin to lose your power because you don't really have a way to explain that to your peers Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're just constantly like invalidating your emotions because they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's not anyone's fault necessarily, but I do think that from a young age, this like superiority inferiority complex is established in white children versus black children. Like white children are constantly having their identities reinforced. And we have a, a very wide breadth for understanding like their different experiences of like whiteness. So there is not like any one way to be white, but because there is like only one way to be black in the media, um, you start to internalize that inferiority and it starts to manifest in other ways, you know, in your relationships and different power dynamics. So it can start something as simple as like, 
when you're younger, you want to choose the white doll versus the black doll. And then when you're older, someone's telling you you only got into college because of affirmative action. But they really believe that. You know what mm. I mean? So you would like, mm. and you don't have any power in being able to be like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, like the, there are certain contexts that we fall into that we don't have a choice over, right? And and regaining our power is to realize we actually do have a choice. We, we actually do have agency over how we show up in places and and can interpret for ourselves what that means, right? Like, so when we, one of the things that I always lamented um, even before becoming more aware of my own internalized, um, you know, white supremacy or in white supremacy that was coming at me, mm-hmm. um, was that like, I've always kind of spoke, I've been a great communicator, right? And I would, and, and this idea that, that articulate black people, you know, like we need the, def, we, we need the adjective, you know, we, we need to be, we, we need a description of why we, t- why we don't speak like normal black people, mm-hmm. you know, like why we don't dress like normal black people, like, like to your point that there is like, there's only one way to be black. And that mm-hmm. is to be inferior. That is to be less than that is to um, not be able to use some of the words that you've used on this podcast that like I've, I've talked to black executives that have literally been asked about the words they use in a meeting. Like, 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 like it was uh, great job, Johnny, you learned that word for this meeting. You know what I mean? Like those, those ways that we are consistently marginalized and told mm-hmm. that like when we are um, intelligent on time um, professional that when we are um, excellent at what we're doing, that we have left blackness behind to be a part of whiteness. Yeah. Yeah. Because the only good things can be associated with whiteness. That's it. Like, yeah. 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 And we kind of like, you mentioned it earlier and we've, many of us that are black professionals have internalized that and have to work through that and have to like, you know, I was just actually having a conversation with my wife this morning about like the ways in which um, I don't even know how to live into my uniqueness as a human being because of standards that are set by society of what it means for me to be strong and black. Mm-hmm. You know, what it means for me to be a black man. And, you know, you talking about people, people kind of giving you this social cachet because you're black and it means it means you know what's cool but you might also know uh where you should invest your money you might also know some like trends for the market you might you might also know some some fashion trends you might also know several other things but Mm -hmm. because you're black it's like oh we'll go to you for what's cool yeah exactly yeah this is uh (laughs) it's it, and it's amazing. There's everywhere. It's like it's like we just met today. You've been you're from New York, living in New Orleans, and like we can name the same experiences. Yes. So like it's the 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 notion that America, you know, you'll have folks try to argue with the idea that America's uh, anti-black by default, 
it's obvious. It is. <laughs> it's, right, it's right in front of us. Yeah. 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 So from the book, the book comes out when we, you mentioned before the book comes out. October. It's not out yet. No, it's not out. You can pre-order it everywhere. Bookshop.org, Barnes Noble, Amazon, everywhere. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I, I'm I'm looking forward to getting into the book, people being able to read it. I, I, I love, again, like I said, I love the idea of, of it. And hopefully it's something that like can really um, give voice to a lot of what people across the United States and probably across the world are feeling and going through. Yeah. So anything else you got going on that you want to share with us? Any any anything in your world that like any ways that, that people can connect with you and see what's going on with you? You can follow me on every social platform at, at Danielle Prescott, P-R-E-S-C-O-D. Um, TikTok is my favorite platform. <laughs> That's right. Is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's so much more fun, I think. Yeah. Um, and um yeah, and just buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> I think people, I think folks will, I think they really will. Um, I got to learn TikTok. I like, you know, I'm, I like dabble in it. I actually, you know, I'm starting to feel super old because I got to ask my kids all the time, my youngest daughter, like, how do I do this? How do I do a video yeah. where this happens? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's, it's, it's hard to learn, but once you get the hang of it, it's one of the easiest platforms to grow on because they really are about quantity not quality i think that instagram mm -hmm. and facebook has kind of warped our minds in terms of like what's necessary on social media and tiktok is just like no we're going to do away with that and of all the platforms it does have the most democratic algorithm so like essentially like everyone has the chance to go viral versus like instagram where it's kind of rigged against you wow well yeah. that's well you know you had me a hello on that then i'm, <laughs> I'm about to move over there yeah. Well, Danielle, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank all of you for listening. Thank you for uh, rating and reviewing the podcast. If you've not rated and reviewed yet and you listen all the time, I don't even know what to say to you. Um, but thank you so much for uh, all of you who listen to this episode and other episodes. And again, a special thank you to all of you who are part of the Patreon community. You guys can uh, find out more about what Danielle has going on in the show notes uh, of this episode. Thank you all for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time.